Chapter fifty eight of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Beaton wasted the rest of the day in the emotions and speculations which Dreyfus's call inspired. It was not that they continuously occupied him, but they broke up the train of other thoughts and spoiled him for work. A very little spoiled Beaton for work. He required just the right mood for work. He comprehended perfectly well that Dreyfus had made him that extraordinary embassy because he wished him to renew his visits, and he easily imagined the means that had brought him to this pass. From what he knew of that girl, he did not envy her father his meeting with her when he must tell her his mission had failed. But had it failed? When Beaton came to ask himself this question, he could only perceive that he and Dreyfus had failed to find any ground of sympathy and had parted in the same dislike with which they had met. But as to any other failure, it was certainly tacit, and it still rested with him to give it effect. He could go back to Dreyfus's house as freely as before, and it was clear that he was very much desired to come back. But if he went back, it was also clear that he must go back with intentions more explicit than before, and now he had to ask himself just how much, or how little, he had meant by going there. His liking for Christine had certainly not increased, but the charm, on the other hand, of holding a leopardess in leash had not yet palled upon him. In his life of inconstancies it was a pleasure to rest upon something fixed, and a man who had no control over himself liked logically enough to feel his control of someone else. The fact cannot otherwise be put in terms, and the attraction which Christine Dreyfus had for him, apart from this, escapes from all terms, as anything purely and merely passional must. He had seen from the first that she was a cat, and so far as youth forecast such things, he felt that she would be a shrew. But he had a perverse sense of her beauty, and he knew a sort of life in which her power to molest him with her temper could be reduced to the smallest proportions and even broken to pieces. Then the consciousness of her money entered. It was evident that the old man had mentioned his millions in the way of a hint to him of what he might reasonably expect if he would turn and be his son-in-law. Beaton did not put it to himself in those words, and in fact his cogitations were not in words at all. It was the play of cognitions, of sensations, formlessly tending to the effect which can only be very clumsily interpreted in language. But when he got to this point in them, Beaton rose to magnanimity, and in a flash of dramatic reverie disposed of a part of Dreyfus's riches in placing his father and mother and his brothers and sisters beyond all pecuniary anxiety for ever. He had no shame, no scruple in this, for he had been a pensioner upon others ever since a Syracusan amateur of the arts had detected his talent and had given him the money to go and study abroad. Beaton had always considered the money alone to be repaid out of his future success, but he now never dreamt of repaying it. As the man was rich, he had even a contempt for the notion of repaying him. But this did not prevent him from feeling very keenly the hardships he put his father to in borrowing money from him, though he never repaid his father either. In this reverie he saw himself sacrificed in marriage with Christine Dreyfus, in a kind of admiring self-pity, 
and he was melted by the spectacle of the dignity with which he suffered all the lifelong trials ensuing from his unselfishness. The fancy that Alma Leighton came bitterly to regret him contributed to soothe and flatter him, and he was not sure that Margaret Vance did not suffer a like loss in him. There had been times when, as he believed, that beautiful girl's high thoughts had tended toward him. There had been looks, gestures, even words, that had this effect to him, or that seemed to have had it. And Beaton saw that he might easily construe Mrs. Horne's confidential appeal to him to get Margaret interested in art again, as something by no means necessarily offensive, even though it had been made to him as to a master of illusion. If Mrs. Horne had to choose between him and the life of good works to which her niece was visibly abandoning herself, Beaton could not doubt which she would choose. The only question was how real the danger of a life of good works was. As he thought of these two girls, one so charming and the other so divine, it became indefinitely difficult to renounce them for Christine Dreyfus, with her sultry temper and her earth-bound ideals. Life had been so flattering to Beaton hitherto that he could not believe them both finally indifferent, and if they were not indifferent, perhaps he did not wish either of them to be very definite. What he really longed for was their sympathy. For a man who is able to walk round quite ruthlessly on the feelings of others often has very tender feelings of his own, easily lacerated, and eagerly responsive to the caresses of compassion. In this frame, Beaton determined to go that afternoon, though it was not Mrs. Horne's day, and call upon her in the hope of possibly seeing Miss Vance alone. As he continued in it, he took this for a sign, and actually went. It did not fall out at once as he wished, but he got Mrs. Horne to talking again about her niece, and Mrs. Horne again regretted that nothing could be done by the fine arts to reclaim Margaret from good works. "'Is she at home? Will you let me see her?' asked Beaton, with something of the scientific interest of a physician inquiring for a patient whose symptoms have been rehearsed to him. He had not asked for her before. "'Yes, certainly,' said Mrs. Horne, and she went herself to call Margaret, and she did not return with her. The girl entered with the gentle grace peculiar to her, and Beaton, bent as he was on his own consolation, could not help being struck with the spiritual exaltation of her look. At sight of her, the vague hope he had never quite relinquished, that they might be something more than aesthetic friends, died in his heart. She wore black, as she often did, but in spite of its fashion her dress received a nun-like effect from the pensive absence of her face. Decidedly, thought Beaton, she is far gone in good works. But he rose all the same to meet her on the old level, and he began at once to talk to her of the subject he had been discussing with her aunt. He said frankly that they both felt she had unjustifiably turned her back upon possibilities which she ought not to neglect. "'You know very well,' she answered, "'that I couldn't do anything in that way worth the time I should waste on it. Don't talk of it, please. I suppose my aunt has been asking you to say this, but it's no use.' I'm sorry it's no use. She wishes it so much. But I'm not sorry otherwise. You can find the pleasure of at least doing good work in it. But I couldn't find anything in it but a barren amusement. Mr. Wetmore is right. 
For me, it's like enjoying an opera or a ball. That's one of Wetmore's phrases. He'd sacrifice anything to them. She put aside the whole subject with a look. You were not at Mr. Dryfoos's the other day. Have you seen any of them lately? I haven't been there for some time, said Beaton evasively. But he thought if he was to get on to anything, he had better be candid. Mr. Dryfoos was at my studio this morning. He's got a queer notion. He wants me to paint his son's portrait. She started. And will you? No, I couldn't do such a thing. It isn't in my way. I told him so. His son had a beautiful face, an antique profile, a sort of early Christian type. But I'm too much of a pagan for that sort of thing. Yes. Yes, Beaton continued, not quite liking her assent after he had invited it. He had his pride in being a pagan, a Greek, but it failed him in her presence now, and he wished that she had protested he was none. He was a singular creature, a kind of survival, an exile in our time and place. I don't know. We don't quite expect a saint to be rustic, but with all his goodness Conrad Dreyfus was a country person. If he were not dying for a cause, you could imagine him milking. Beaton intended a contempt that came from the bitterness of having himself once milked the family cow. His contempt did not reach Miss Vance. He died for a cause, she said, the holiest. Of labor? Of peace. He was there to persuade the strikers to be quiet and go home. I haven't been quite sure, said Beaton, but in any case he had no business there. The police were on hand to do the persuading. I can't let you talk so, cried the girl. It's shocking. Oh, I know it's the way people talk, and the worst is that in the sight of the world it's the right way. But the blessing on the peacemakers is not for the policemen with their clubs. Beaton saw that she was nervous. He made his reflection that she was altogether too far gone in good works for the fine arts to reach her. He began to think how he could turn her primitive Christianity to the account of his modern heathenism. He had no deeper design than to get flattered back into his own favor far enough to find courage for some sort of decisive step. In his heart he was trying to will whether he should or should not go back to Dreyfus's house. It could not be from the caprice that had formerly taken him. It must be from a definite purpose. Again he realized this. Of course you are right, he said. I wish I could have answered that old man differently. I fancy he was bound up in his son, though he quarreled with him and crossed him. But I couldn't do it. It wasn't possible. He said to himself that if she said no now, he would be ruled by her agreement with him, and if she disagreed with him, he would be ruled still by the chance and would go no more to the Dreyfuses. He found himself embarrassed to the point of blushing when she said nothing, and left him, as it were, on his own hands. I should like to have given him that comfort. I fancy he hasn't much comfort in life, but there seems no comfort in me. He dropped his head in a fit attitude for compassion, but she poured no pity on it. There is no comfort for us in ourselves, she said. It's hard to get outside, but there's only despair within. When we think we have done something for others by some great effort, we find it's all for our own vanity. Yes, said Beaton, if I could paint pictures for righteousness' sake, I should have been glad to do Conrad Dreyfus for his father. I felt sorry for him. 
Did the rest seem very much broken up? You saw them all? Not at all. Miss Dreyfus was ill, her sister said. It's hard to tell how much people suffer. His mother seemed bewildered. The younger sister is a simple creature. She looks like him. I think she must have something of his spirit. Not much spirit of any kind, I imagine, said Beaton. But she's amiably material. Did they say Miss Dreyfus was seriously ill? No. I suppose she might be prostrated by her brother's death. Does she seem that kind of person to you, Miss Vance? asked Beaton. I don't know. I haven't tried to see so much of them as I might the past winter. I was not sure about her when I met her. I've never seen much of people except in my own set, and the very poor. I have been afraid I didn't understand them. She may have a kind of pride that would not let her do herself justice. Beaton felt the unconscious dislike in the endeavour of praise. Then she seems to you like a person whose life, its trials, its chances, would make more of than she is now? I didn't say that. I can't judge of her at all. But where we don't know, don't you think we ought to imagine the best? Oh, yes, said Beaton. I didn't know but what I once said of them might have prejudiced you against them. I have accused myself of it. He always took a tone of conscientiousness, of self-censure, in talking with Miss Vance. He could not help it. Oh, no, and I never allowed myself to form any judgment of her. She is very pretty, don't you think, in a kind of way? Very. She has a beautiful brunette colouring, that flowery white and the delicate pink in it. Her eyes are beautiful. She's graceful, too, said Beaton. I've tried her in colour, but I didn't make it out. I've wondered sometimes, said Miss Vance, whether that elusive quality you find in some people you try to paint doesn't characterise them all through. Miss Dreyfus might be ever so much finer and better than we would find out in the society way that seems the only way. Perhaps, said Beaton gloomily and he went away profoundly discouraged by this last analysis of Christine's character. The angelic imperviousness of Miss Vance to properties of which his own wickedness was so keenly aware in Christine might have made him laugh if it had not been such a serious affair with him. As it was, he smiled to think how very differently Alma Leighton would have judged her from Miss Vance's premises. He liked that clear vision of Alma's, even when it pierced his own disguises. Yes, that was the light he had let die out, and it might have shone upon his path through life. Beaton never felt so poignantly the disadvantage of having on any given occasion been wanting to his own interests through his self-love as in this. He had no one to blame but himself for what had happened, but he blamed Alma for what might happen in the future, because she shut out the way of retrieval and return. When he thought of the attitude she had taken toward him, it seemed incredible, and he was always longing to give her a final chance to reverse her final judgment. It appeared to him that the time had come for this now, if ever. End of chapter 58